In his famous lament about his inability to find satisfaction, Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones should have looked to brain functioning for an answer. Fascinating research conducted over the past decade or so using functional magnetic resonance imaging is illustrating that a region of the brain that thrives on challenge and novelty is the home of satisfaction. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta is my guest, Dr. Gregory Burns of Emory University. Dr. Burns is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University and Biomedical Engineering at Georgia Institute of Technology. His work in functional imaging extends into several areas of computational and cognitive neuroscience, including novelty and reward processing, human social interaction, and neural economics. He is the author of the book Satisfaction and the forthcoming book Iconoclast. Welcome, Dr. Burns. Thank you. Dr. Burns, we humans have a lot on our minds as we go through life. For some, it is simply survival. For others, it is higher-level pursuits. Why study satisfaction? Well, the reason to study satisfaction is because, as you said, humans have this burden of thinking about a lot of stuff and oftentimes are not very satisfied, strangely. You blast pretty much the pleasure principle as an adequate explanation of human motivation. What do you think is going on in the brain that motivates us to pursue satisfaction? Well, it's funny you should mention the pleasure principle because every time I try to explain this, if you, if you go up to the average person on the street and you ask them why they do whatever it is they do, most people think that it just boils down to, well, because it makes me feel good or... You know, I'm doing this to avoid feeling bad. And that, in a nutshell, is the pleasure principle. And that is the idea that has guided our pursuit and scientific pursuit specifically of understanding why humans do what they do. Now, what's interesting is we started in my group, uh, as well as others, looking at what happens in the brain. And as soon as you start looking at the brain, a, a very different picture begins to emerge about motivation. And a lot of this has to do with the neurochemical dopamine. So dopamine, we thought, was a pleasure chemical because after it was discovered, scientists found that it was released to things like food and sex and water, um, all the things that make animals and people feel good. But I'd say in about the past decade, we've discovered that dopamine is not released to pleasure per se, but it's actually released in anticipation. It's more of an anticipation motivating chemical of the brain that that primes the pump, if you will, for action. Hmm. So how do you get more dopamine flowing in the brain? Well, there's a couple ways to do it. There's actually, there are many ways to do it. We'll focus on the legal ones. (laughs) But basically anything that is unexpected or surprises a person will usually cause a brief uh, burst of dopamine. And what dopamine is doing is it's basically, it's released whenever an error of prediction is made. It means that something unexpected has happened and you need to do something. Now, we think that also has a lot of uh, positive feelings associated with it, although not always. But if you take that and you extend the biological finding to ask the question of, okay, great, how can I release more dopamine? The key factor focuses on novelty. The most efficient and simplest way to get more dopamine pumping in the brain is to continue to do novel things that require you to adapt and learn. You look specifically at the striatum. Can you give us a little anatomy lesson about the striatum, the part of the brain that responds to novelty? Sure. So, so the brain has two big hemispheres called the cortex, and the, the most frontal part is called the frontal lobes, which is also a key player in decision-making. And all of this sits 
on top of the brainstem, which then is connected to the spinal cord. So pretty much in the, in the geometric center of the skull is the brainstem, and within the brainstem there are uh, two clusters of neurons that produce dopamine. Doctors and patients with Parkinson's disease know this because uh, these are the neurons that die off during Parkinson's disease. There's another subgroup that is not typically affected called the VTA. But in any case, both these groups of neurons send projections to an area called the striatum. And the striatum is subdivided into many parts, but vast majority of dopamine receptors are in these small areas that sit right above the brainstem. I like the notion that you mentioned in your book, um, Satisfaction, that you believe that our brains have expanded as much as they have in order to predict other people's behaviors. That's right. So from a standpoint of evolution, so every, everyone knows about kind of the basic principles of evolution. turns out there's, there's really two types of evolution that Darwin talked about, and they're both important. The more commonly known one is survival of the fittest, and that means that animals who are better than other animals at adapting to a particular environment or escaping a predator will live to see another day and then reproduce and have offspring. That's survival of the fittest. Now, personally, I don't think that survival of the fittest, which is called natural selection, has been a big factor in human evolution. Humans have been around really for only about 100,000 years. But even 100,000 years ago, the earliest human ancestors did not really have many natural predators. The main predators that they had were each other. So, again, it's not any different today, really. So the key factor that was driving the evolution of the human brain then was not natural selection, but figuring out what other hominids and humans were doing and outwitting each other. Now, a key part of that is finding a mate, because it's not simply enough to survive another day. You have to reproduce, too. So all of the kind of cultural complexities about uh, the difference between the sexes and the whole mating dance in humans is a result of evolution, and specifically sexual evolution. Right. So it's the challenge of competing against each other that has um, promoted these changes. That's it entirely. So going back to novelty, novelty, of course, provides new information to the brain. But information alone isn't sufficient, is it? No. It has to be. It depends on the context, of course. And there are different ways to get information. So broadly speaking, there, there are two ways you can get information. One is through direct experience. So you're out doing something and, I don't know, something happens and you make a mistake and you learn from it. That's a piece of information that affects one individual very directly. That's how most animals in the world operate, actually. Uh, it's kind of an exploratory way and it's very inefficient if you think about it because it means that the only way to learn about the world is through direct experience. Now, a far more efficient way that primates and other animals have evolved and humans have evolved to a perfection, really, is the ability to observe other people and observe the consequences of their action as well as to receive and transmit information with each other. So if you think about it, this is a very powerful way to create models in your, in your head about how the world works, including other people, without actually experiencing it directly. And you can learn from that. <laughs> um, it's just, it's making me think, uh, so someone who is very uninformed would constantly be bumping into novelty, and yet people with a nice base of information that keep adding to it 
are going to do better. They're going to function better. That's what I think. I think evolution has, because the world is constantly changing, has evolved in human beings a brain that is very attuned to information because information is, is power, really. Um, if you don't know how something works, you're at a serious disadvantage. So evolution has resulted in, in mechanisms in our brain that, that actually seek out information in various forms. It can be just kind of raw information, but it, it's also experiential information from doing things. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like sort of a building block thing. You have to have something in place for um, new information to appear significant. Otherwise, it's just uh, words on a page or something you're observing, but it, it doesn't sink in. It doesn't, it's not meaningful. That's right. So, so this is the difference between information and meaning. And the only way that you get meaning is, like you said, through experience and, and building a template for what, what is meaningful and what isn't. But it's always, it's always a guessing game because you never know exactly what is, is the most important or meaningful piece of information, except in hindsight. Right. The fact that information changes the brain at a molecular level is fascinating. Yeah, but if you think about it, why shouldn't it be that way? Because, I mean, the brain really is an information organ. It transmits little bits of information between its parts in the form of electrical impulses and, and chemical transmissions at synapses. But that is fundamentally information. It's just that it's been instantiated in a physical medium. Right. And in your research, you try to find inf information that works best to promote these changes in the brain. Right. And I think this gets back to satisfaction and why some things are more satisfying than others. So if we take the idea that the brain is really an information sponge and that's what it's evolved for, then we should give it it. And there are different ways to do it. One is through assimilating information either by observing people or reading or learning, just in general, but also through experience itself, by looking at things that you can learn, doing new things, going places, meeting people you've never met before. These are all the things that the brain is evolved for and that's what it really wants. What have you learned about individual differences in the desire for novelty-seeking? Well, that's a great question, and it's, it's actually a tricky question to answer because of the limitations that we have with imaging technologies right now. The main limitation is that when we use functional MRI, it's a very noisy measurement, and we have to do lots of measurements on an individual. And then when we compare one individual to another, they oftentimes don't even look alike, uh, not even close. So the first step is trying to figure out commonalities between people. And then once we know that, then we have a kind of a base to build on to try to figure out, for example, why some people are high novelty seekers and other people don't even want to get off the couch. Dr. Burns, in your book, Satisfaction, you have a chapter entitled The Sushi Problem, and it's the dilemma about um, how often to do something that is pleasurable, how often to partake. Yes, that is the difficult question. Once you find something that you like to do, you have this problem that if you do it so frequently, if you do it every opportunity you get, then it ceases to become as enjoyable because you get bored with it or it becomes predictable. But on the other hand, you don't want to deprive yourself from doing it at all. So the sushi problem, as I call it, is what's the happy medium? There's not a simple answer for it, but I can tell you what the, the two approaches are. One is a phenomenon that has been studied for many decades, uh, which animals do. You simply just consume or do the thing until you get bored with it. So then something else will, will appeal to you more. You know, 
if I eat sushi every day, then maybe I'll start to like pizza. But that, to me, kind of misses the point, because all that does is degrade something that you like to the point of banality, really. So there has to be some intermediary, which unfortunately can only be reached through experimentation, because every person's individual. So my only advice for that is to do things and do them as frequently as possible until you detect a little bit of uh, predictability about it. And so then back off. Notice the threshold. Yeah. Right. Good advice. This is very interesting uh, material, and I thank you for this discussion, Dr. Burns. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Gregory Burns, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.